God is, is in this position where He says He realizes people understand just how great and wonderful and powerful He is. And He gives these laws out of deep love. And these people feel this sense of awe that God would pick them, the Jews, the Israelites, out of all the nations of the world and choose them to speak to them. And they're in awe with the fact of this God's greatness. And yet this God's deep love. And at a certain point, God makes this statement. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear or reverence me, respect me, and keep all my commands always. And here, listen to this. So that it might go well with them and their children forever. If people would just get this respect thing down, he says, how healthy relationships would be, how well their life would go. I think God kind of burst into that R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I mean, if you guys would just give it to me. You see, God knows how it works. See, if you value Him as the most important in your life, you'll begin to find that this most important person in your life, you'll begin to understand you'll have wisdom. In fact, take your program and you'll see Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. In the program, you'll see a verse there. And this, I could give you lots of verses in Scripture because this similar strain is found all throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise this. Proverbs 9.10 reveals how important respect is. Quite plainly, God tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that wisdom opens up the understanding of the person so that there is now a knowledge, and from that knowledge, as you understand, especially God who's created all, you'll begin to understand Him and all that He's created. You, me, all creation. There's a sense you place me in this place. And relationship, not just with me, will work well, but with a whole lot of others and with this world. Because it's essential to our well-being. I think respect is a way of making people feel loved and important. It'll make a difference in your marriage. It'll make a difference with your children. It'll make a difference with your parents. It'll make a difference in your friendships, at work, in your neighborhood, where you go to school, and in every relationship. It's like stamping Stradivarius on the person's forehead and saying, you are uniquely special, valued, treasured. And because you are, I'm going to know and study and understand and see you and, as I do, care for you. And what I want you to learn, and we'll just take a few moments here, and as look at a few examples of Jesus' life, the master respecter of all, of God and all people. And here's how respect works. I'm going to talk about it this week and also next week. This week, respect. Next week, understanding. Because they're essential in building what I call strong relationships. Respect leads to understanding. It will always, if you do it in an involved in a relationship, respect values a person, and as you value that person, you begin to see not always the surface of what they're doing, because sometimes those things can be very painful, but what it does, it helps you get underneath it and understand the need and the ways that person may be seeking to relate to you that cause difficulty. And when you have mutual respect, you have then the potential for mutual trust. I love what this guy in the street says. Really smart. I respect people, but I don't always trust them. They don't always go hand in hand. 
See, Jesus gave respect, and here's the cool thing. We usually give respect to people that we respect. Jesus gave respect to people who didn't necessarily deserve respect. By their lifestyle, their values, their choices, the culture they were living in. Rather than being respected, most people dissed them. In a, the hood term, they were dissed. Dissed means so totally humiliated they weren't worth living. They were to be discarded and rejected and thrown out, trashed. And Jesus comes along and respects them. I want you to look at the first guy named Levi. I don't have it in the program, but you can hear the scripture here. It's in Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. And if you're visiting and you're, you're checking out church and figuring out what is God all about, um, the Bible is such a helpful helpful book because it gives you a picture of a, a person, Jesus, who lived this respectful life. And if you study his life and you look at all his relationships, I could go through a whole bunch. You'll see how he treated people and it will change your life. It says in Luke 5, 27-32, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now listen to this. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. I always had trouble reading that line next. Saw him sitting in the tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything and followed him. I'm going, wow, how does that work? And then it says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Some people call it Matthew's party. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. They're basically going, what in the world? How can you respect this guy? How can you even spend time with this guy? How can you even get involved with these kind of people? And Jesus answers them because he hears them saying this. Why do you eat and drink, they say, with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's what we know. Levi's a tax collector. Tax collectors were not respected individuals. They basically got rich off of other people's money. They not only taxed the Jews what Rome said they were to tax, but they would always, they would always tax it quite a bit above so they would make their own profit. They would, they would indiscriminately bring in more money than they were supposed to. So this guy who's a Jew is really, in their eyes, not just a greedy person, but he's a traitor. He's one of their own who's become the enemy. And he's rejected by, by God's people, and in essence, he's rejected by God from their standpoint. And what we read is this, that Jesus comes along, sees this guy, and appears out of nowhere, out of the blue. He says, follow me, and this guy gets up and follows him. Now, I want to share with you, I think, the story behind the story. Because you see it in so many of Jesus' relationships. More than likely, um, where, and we know this from Scripture, where Levi was located, he was located in what I call one of the main highways, one of the main interstates, so to speak, of Israel. And in fact, he was up at this place at Lake Galilee, and it came in due to the mountains and due to the desert on the other side, the, the cultures of that time, Babylon, Assyria, Rome even, would all, and Greece, would all have to come through this direction, right through this little point, and then they would travel along, because there's desert over here, there's waters over here. You have to realize Israel is strategically located because everything came through there, and if they were to get to Egypt and to the rest of 
that world of that civilized world of that day, you had to go through there. So this was like a main stop, and Levi had to be probably one of the wealthiest guys around, and the guys who were at the tax collector booths with him were probably very wealthy. And so one day you see Jesus coming along, and I'm sure throughout this guy's life, Levi, he is everyone is dissing him, from the rabbis to the priests to the, the good synagogue-going Jews to those who were just even... You know, Easter kind of synagogue going Jews, whatever they are. Anyway. <laughs> and one day, Jesus is coming along. Levi sees this guy. He knows who he is because he's heard the report. He hasn't come through this tax booth or his tax booth yet, but this time he's in line. He gets up to Levi, and instead of dissing him, not looking at him, having one of his own disciples go ahead and pay the toll, Jesus comes up, shakes his hand, and he says... What do I owe you? And he treats him respectfully, gets into conversation with him, and Levi's going, wow, this is a little weird. What does this guy want? Jesus leaves says, God bless you, have a good day. Never heard that before. God bless me. So Jesus goes on his way and he teaches, and later that night he's coming back. Here is Levi having the line, and, and Levi looks out, he sees Jesus, he recognizes him, Jesus gives him a knowing glance. This, Jesus recognizes him. He gets up to the line, he says, how you doing, Levi? Remembers his name. He says, what do I owe you? Levi says, 15 bucks. Jesus gives him a 20 and says, keep the change. This is my paraphrase, but this, this is what's going on. He's going through, and Levi's going, what does this character want from me? I bet you he's got a preaching tour here for a while, and he wants a tax break. Give me a little bit, so I'll give him back, and he comes out the winner. I don't trust this guy. But he's feeling something he's never felt before. So Jesus comes back the next day. And the next day, Jesus treats him respectfully. Cares for him. Talks to him. Asks how things are going. And Levi is beginning to be attracted to him because of what was put into him through respect. I want to tell you, I just want to stop and pause and say to us as a church, it is far more important that we build bridges of respect and say probably hardly anything about God. And we begin to place that respect into others so that something in them starts saying, what is it that you have? And they're attracted to it. I think that's what was going on here with Jesus. The next few days he passes by. And he's feeling respect. Jesus isn't around. About a week later, he sees Jesus coming up again. This time Jesus doesn't come into the tax booth, but instead he goes to the lake shore and gets to the lake of Galilee. And there's a crowd, you could say a multitude of people around him. He's in a boat, Jesus is, and he's teaching. And, and really, because of this, and some of the stuff he hears that's going on that Jesus is doing over there, there's not a lot of people going through. So Levi says to one of his buddies, Hey, I'm closing my booth. There's not much... Take him for me. I'm going to go over and hear this Jesus guy. And as he's leaving, I can hear Levi's buddy saying, Don't tell me, Levi, you found religion. But Levi goes over there and he's attracted and he hears what's good, what Jesus is saying. And Jesus starts talking about the fact that there's this woman who had a coin and she lost it and she searched everywhere. And, and this coin was so important to her that even though it was of just hardly any value at all, maybe not more than a half a cent, she was looking for. 
And he goes on and he tells about this shepherd who, who had a sheep, a hundred of them, and he had 99, but he spent the whole day, the next night, the next day, looking for this one little lost sheep. And when he found it, he was so excited and he brought this lost sheep home. And then he says, that is the way your Father in Heaven loves you. And Jesus says, I'm looking for people who want to know this kind of love. I'm looking for people who will follow me, says Jesus, and become a disciple, one who learns from me. And I'm taking applications. Anybody want to sign up? Let me know. Hands his message. And I think Levi's going, this is too cool. Too bad I chose to be a tax collector. I mean, if I had only been a fisherman or a simple accountant or a farmer, I'd sign up in a heartbeat. But you know what? No self-respecting rabbi is going to call the likes of me. So he goes back to his booth. People begin to disperse. The multitude now, a number of them are coming this direction through the booth that have to pay their taxes from being in the city. And he looks up and there's Jesus a little bit further down and Jesus smiles and he feels his warmth inside. And he's going, wow, this is cool. Jesus comes up and he says to Jesus, you know, good talk, man. That was a really good talk, Jesus. And I think Jesus looks at him and goes, you know what? Here's an application I'd like you to sign up. Would you follow me? Well, I said, man, I'd do that. I've never experienced anything like this in my entire life. There's something supernatural going on here. There's something I'm ready to give up everything for. Because respect built this bridge that allowed for there to be some understanding because he began to see this Jesus who loved him. And because of the respect, it built a relationship. And through that relationship, Levi um, came to a place where he saw that Jesus understood. He saw his need. And even saw that Jesus didn't judge him for the ways that he was trying to go to get whatever it was to fill him up. He wasn't being judged for that. But when Jesus came and gave him what he was really looking for, relationship just took off. I could tell you a bunch of others. You can go a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus meets a woman at a well. Travels through Samaria, a place where there's half-Jews, and where people had intermarried with the enemy, and, and now 200, 300 years later or more, here is a whole race of people who have polluted the Jewish faith. Scum! Why would they do that? That's how the Jews felt about them. Jesus is traveling through. First of all, most rabbis would never go through that area, but he travels through. They're taking the shortcut to get to Jerusalem. On his way there, he stops and he says to the disciples, they're going, we're starved, Jesus. How about doing that miracle of the loaves again? And he says, no, go into town. And, and so they go into town and Jesus is sitting there and here comes a woman. It's about noon, 1 p.m. It's hot in the day. No one comes to get water in the heat like that unless you are a person who is not respected, you are a person who has ill repute, you are a person who has lived a lifestyle that even the scum Samaritans don't even like. And Jesus talks to her. First of all, she's just blown away because no rabbi or even man, Jewish man, would talk to a woman. And beyond that, talk to a woman who is a Samaritan. And beyond that, talk to someone and she knows who she is. He, She knows that he knows that... She is a person who should be disrespected, but she didn't know until further in the conversation 
that he knew more about her than she realized. Because at one point, he says, go get your husband, because she's starting to be attracted to this respect that he's placed inside of her because of his own self-respect and love. He begins to build this bridge of respect and she's beginning to be really intrigued with what's going on. He says, go get your husband. And then it's like, oh, no, no, this is a bummer. He's gone this far, but he'll never go further. And she says, um, I don't have a husband. He looks at her because she can hardly probably say it. He says, I know. You've had five husbands, and now the sixth one you're with, you're not even married to. And he continues to talk with her and love her. And she feels not only respected, but this guy maybe could understand her. And not only he's understanding her, he feels cared for and loved. And at a certain point, she runs away and she tells everybody, you've got to meet this. I can tell you a story about a woman who was dragged before Jesus who was found in adultery and they all wanted him to, to throw stones at her. I won't tell that. Maybe I'll tell that next week. But Jesus, again, respects her, understands her, and she feels love and care. I mean, there are so many stories in the Bible and the life and example of Jesus. Jesus' parents start bringing children to Jesus. Jesus did not do what most adults would want him to do. He was a rabbi, a busy guy. But Jesus even respected children. And when the adults said, Jesus isn't worthy of your time, he stopped them in their tracks. And here's what he said. Don't get in the way of their coming to me. God's kingdom belongs to these little ones. Here's the truth. Every one of us need to hear this. Unless you become like one of them, helpless, dependent, humble, and sincere, you don't stand a chance of experiencing God's rule in your life. In a sense, he's saying to you and to me that the people who begin to experience this respect and love and grace and understanding and the care of God in their life are not the people who are self-righteous, who are dissing others and disrespecting others, but the ones who in their own brokenness humbly bow their knee and recognize that they need God more than anything else in the world. And the church that's going to have the work of God spread throughout it, where people will be attracted to God, will be the church that's on its knees, broken in humility, and says, God, we need You more than anything else. It doesn't matter our appearance or anything else, but what who we are, we recognize and we come humbly before You. We are broken people. And we need You. We need You. Oh, I want to share this story with you, but it may be long, but I'm going to. Great book. What's so great about America? I don't ever, hardly ever do this, but a guy named Dinesh D'Souza, I think that's you say his name, talks about this cultural battle we're facing. How do we handle a society that has lost its moral underpinnings? What do we do? How do we enter into a relationship with our current culture? How do we maintain a relationship with a culture that's no longer what it was 50 years ago? How do you, how do you respectfully engage in a culture that is, you look at it and you just want to discard it? You can't stand it. You can't disrespect it. The actions and all the values that we see right now in our culture. Since the 60s, he goes on, he says, America's changed. We've accepted and adopted this ethic of authenticity that's not rooted in some kind of outside moral law, but it's rooted in self-expression that says, I'll do whatever I please, whatever I need, whatever I feel, whatever I want. And many cultural conservatives react to it with fear and loathing. There's all kinds of voices condemning this licentious, immoral rush 
towards self-fulfillment. Conservatives like Alan Bloom, Patrick Buchanan, Bill Bennett, Robert Bork. He says these men would like nothing better than to uproot the ethic of authenticity and restore the moral consensus that existed in the 1950s. And he's not saying that we shouldn't have that kind of moral underpinning. But he's saying, how do you engage a culture? How do we as a church engage a culture that has lost its moral underpinnings? And I just love what he has to say here. He says, recently I stepped into my neighborhood Starbucks and there behind the counter was a specimen who probably would not have existed in earlier generations. I surveyed him with curious fascination. The mohawk hair, the earrings, the nose rings, the studs on his forehead and tongue, the tattoos. I could just imagine Judge Bork entering the room. His immediate reaction would probably be, arrest that man. Since this is not practical, another option would be to grab the young fellow and yell, what is wrong with you, you demented freak? From Bork's point of view, there is simply no excuse for some people. But what good would come of this? The epithets, the remiss, the, 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 you know, the, the uh, fighting back of the conservative. They have no chance of persuading the Starbucks guy. Indeed, they are likely to have the opposite effect. Get away from me, you fascist, from the Starbucks guy's perspective. See, the cultural the conservatives are, are enemies of their freedom. He'd probably regard a guy like Judge Bork as some self-righteous mullah who's trying to tell him how to live. See, the Starbuck guy believes that he has an inalienable right to determine his own destiny, to make his own choices. Thus, he regards the conservative approach as presumptuous, coercive, and un-American. And he's reluctant to listen to anything these conservatives have to say. The Starbucks guy objection to the conservatives is valid on two counts. First, many conservatives do, like, do sound like they're against freedom. For instance, some of them want to enforce public morality. And again, I'm not making a statement here of what the church has to say. I'm reading what this guy has to say, and I think there's some things of value. Through censorship of objectionable songs, movies, TV shows, another person says we need state censorship, that idea of a time that has come. And then he writes this. I cannot see how such strategies could possibly work. Is it realistic for a democratic society to enforce norms on a moral order that is no longer shared by the community? How can a political strategy that binds itself against America's core value of freedom possibly succeed? Cultural conservatives must recognize that the new morality is now entrenched and pervasive so that there is no way back to the shared moral hierarchy of the past, however fondly that may be in our memory. Now hang on with me, because here is the approach that I think is, is godly. He says, second, contrary to what cultural conservatives fear, the new morality is not simply a screen for self-indulgence and immorality. He's basically saying, if you will just respect the person who has some deep need, let's just take this guy. If you are sympathetically, this is his word for respect and understanding, engage the Starbucks guy in a conversation and ask him to come for himself, he would probably say, I'm trying to be unique. I want to be an individual. I'm trying to be me. And some may find that comical, but the goals which the Starbucks guy is striving for are legitimate ones. Even at the cost of bodily pain, he wants a distinctive identity, a life that is not simply a copy of other people's lives. In short, he wants a life, listen to this church, a life that counts. And respect leads to understanding, or it can lead to a total disregard. You are really crazy, out of our lives, we want nothing to do, and it can go to this place of fighting, a stance. 
He says a much better approach for conservatives is to acknowledge the legitimacy of those ideals, but to make the case, and I love this, that the Starbucks guy has adopted a debased form of it. That's really what Jesus was saying. He didn't even have to say it because Levi knew it. Most people know it. And if you're living in a way that's displeasing to God, most people are quite aware of it. You don't need someone else to come on and go, man, what you are, you are, you know, they don't need to be cut off. What they need is respect, which leads to understanding, which leads them to self-understanding and self-respect so that they begin to themselves see their own ways of getting things aren't going to meet the deep needs of their hearts. So, he says this. He says, I don't think either... Um, Right, or it's prudent to attack him for this. The Starbuck guy is an idealist, and it would be wrong to trample that idealism. Moreover, his ethic of authenticity is entrenched in his psyche, in his who he is. How realistic would it be to uproot it? A much better approach is to acknowledge the legitimacy of the idea of authenticity, the sense of he wants a life that counts, but to make the case that the Starbuck guy has adopted a debased form of it. The Starbuck guy wants to be original, and this is a good thing to be, but it may be pointed out to him that he's not succeeding in this because every fourth guy at Starbuck looks like him. Perhaps there are more meaningful ways for the Starbuck guy to convey his individuality throughout, for example, or by dedicating himself to a cause he believes in. Instead of completely denying the value of expressive freedom, it would be better to embrace it, at least in part, and to focus on educating people about the rich moral sources of freedom and how to use freedom well. And then he goes on and says, it's not only the Starbuck guy needs to change, or the conservative, but the Starbuck guy needs to change. He needs to begin to realize what he's gotten, where he's gotten this freedom from, so that there can be relationship. Where to be Jesus to the world? This isn't, folks, this isn't just about our culture, this is about even in your marriages with your children. What does it mean to respect, to value that person and their opinions and their ideas and their needs and to seek to say this person is such a treasure and because this person God has created as a treasure, I'm going to value that person. And I'm going to seek to understand that. And I'm going to seek to help educate them in such a way that they begin to see that the very deep need that they have, the ideal that they're hanging on to, in the debased form of trying to reach it, won't work. It won't work. There is someone who loves you in Christ. You know how Christ is going to touch them? For you. I'm going to close with just this little illustration, and I've used it before. But see, what we look at sometimes, we can quickly judge and discard and see as worthless. And what we look at and judge, as worthless as it looks, it may not be. What you may want to write off, discard, or trash might be of great value. For instance, if you saw this rag laying around, just laying around out here. I think you saw it on the road, you'd probably take it and trash it, right? But what you see maybe as being a rag, I see as of great value. Because this, which looks like a rag and looks worthless, looks like it is nothing, is important in the eyes of someone I so deeply love. My youngest daughter. 
So important is this to us that sometimes when it was left in Florida at Grandma's house, we would pay more money than this little thing is worth to ship it back home. We might be an hour away from a place we stayed and we would turn around and get it. Because it is valuable in the eyes of someone I deeply, deeply love. And God wants to, through Jesus, as you look at His life, wants us to look at one another even though at times the things we do to one another, the things we value, our opinions and ideas and all that stuff look like this. He calls us to value the person because of how deeply loved and valued that person is in the eyes of someone we love. God. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Would you do that? And I want you just to think for a second. Your own ability to give respect. When respect is present, present, I want you to your head bound for a moment. There's a willingness to compromise. When respect is present in a relationship, there's an ability to feel comfortable being yourself. When respect is present in a relationship, there's an ability to admit being wrong. When respect is present in a relationship, conflict is resolved by talking honestly. When respect is present in the cornerstone of a relationship, you feel safe being with that person. When there is respect present as a substrata that's being built in the relationship, your feelings, your opinions, and your friends will be valued. When respect is present, guess what? When it's present, you can say no to things you don't want to do. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I know that at certain points, through certain words, through certain things said, you spoke to hearts today. And I am calling you through your Holy Spirit to take that seed, to cause it to be watered, to grow. And God, there's, there's some here even this morning who are broken, feeling unworthy, and they feel like Levi, or they feel like that Samaritan woman, or that lady who was caught in adultery, or like those little children who have been shunned and thrown away, or maybe the Starbucks guy. And you're looking down and you say, I love you. I value you so deeply. And it may be that some of the things you're trying to do to get what you most want, for, want and long for, are never going to get it. And right now, Jesus is saying, just open your heart to me and I will come in and I will teach you self-respect and understanding that will lead to a deep, deep sense of your being loved. You want that. God, right now, is saying it's available. All you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me and just come into my life. I want to know the deep love that comes from a relationship of respect with you. Father, I just commit these prayers to you. I commit these people. And I commit our church and say, God, move in and through us as we in our brokenness seek to respect and love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a, have a great morning.